Hey everyone, today Connor and I talk with Aurora Strauss. She's one of the youngest professional race car drivers and a full-time student at Harvard. When she's not winning races or taking exams, she's running Girls with Drive, which helps young women break into male-dominated industries. We talk with Aurora about her experience learning to drive at the age of 13, the intense training that goes into preparing for a competition, and the best way for people to get started in racing. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, and now let's jump into it. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. So you have a pretty awesome story from what we've read, but for anyone that doesn't really know you or your background, could you give like a 30, 40 second, you know, pitch on, you know, some of the highlight reels and some of the things you've accomplished? <laughs> sure. Uh, so my name is Aurora Strauss. It's nice to meet you all, even if it's virtually. Um, I am a professional race car driver. I'm also a junior at Harvard. Um, I first learned to drive when I was 13 and now I'm 22. And I guess in terms of racing accolades, um, I finished as rookie of the year in my first full season of pro racing in 2017 second in the championship in 2018, and I actually haven't done a full championship run since then because I've been doing races in between school. That's awesome. And so, you know, I, I read the story in the background around you getting behind the wheel of a Mazda Miata at 13. And I mean, I'm from New Jersey. And so personally, we can't even get our driver's license until 17, but would love <laughs> to know the story around how that all came to be um, and, and what got you actually in the driver's seat at the age of 13. Of course. I first started driving with my dad, actually. So he wanted me to be a safer driver on the roads, particularly if, if you're from New Jersey, then you've definitely been on the road at night while it's like pouring rain or snowing. And or if you hit black ice or if a deer jumps out in front of you, right? Um, driving is scary enough for a new teenager kind of in the South, um, but in the Northeast when the weather is just so atrocious all the time. Um, he wanted to safeguard against that. So actually the end goal wasn't for me to be a race car driver. It was just, you know, he was a gearhead. He loved driving. He did some amateur racing himself um, and wanted me to kind of take part in that with him, mostly for bonding and safety reasons. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I started again in our, in a Miata. Um, and I did that for years, just kind of privately with him. Um, and then I went to a three-day skip barber racing school, which I'm pretty sure that those still exist actually. Um, they're under totally new branding. They don't use Miatas anymore, a different owner. Um, but I was there when it was like original Skippy. Um, and during that three-day racing school, I came into contact with my first sponsor who put me straight into semi pro racing. So super quick ramp up. Um, not actually necessarily something I'd recommend to most people. It was a little too quick for like a 16 year old. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I got started. So when did you realize that you knew you wanted to take the regular kind of driving to the racing? Was it, you, you got approached and then they kind of asked if you wanted to do it or did you know, as soon as you got behind the wheel that you want to keep doing this, mm. and, you know, get better at it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I, I don't know if there's one specific time that I could pinpoint where I knew. I think I kind of just always, like I know my, my dad initially got me involved in it to just to have me drive. And I think that I always kind of knew starting the second that I got into the car that it was something that I wanted to do. That sounds very cheesy, but I think part of it, you know, there's, there's kind of two elements of racing, right? Like there's the element of driving and just loving to drive and particularly at the limit of, of whatever that car's capacity or bandwidth is at that point. And then there's the racing side of it, which is like, you know, winning, like winning is awesome. Right. So, so I, I love the second part of that. I, I love driving. I think driving is fun. I think that it's, um, super, it's much more kind of nuanced than people think, right. Driving a car at its limit. Um, and it's much more technical. It's not just kind of like balls to the wall, see how quick you can go type of thing most of the time. Um, but the second part of it is my favorite. I love winning and that's not the element that you get from just doing track days or just driving on the street. So I was always kind of chasing that. That's awesome. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you have a competitive spirit. And I mean, so for the people who are listening to this right now, I can probably make some kind of rough assumption that like at least 99% of the people who are listening to this today have driven a car, right? And so I think that yeah. is something that's kind of just like fundamental. If you live in the US or any kind of suburbs or outside of a city, you've driven before. Um, yes. I would love to know and just get educated myself, like what separates someone who can drive versus like very few people on the planet can do what you can do. Uh, and so mm -hmm. like, how do you go and train? How do you practice for that kind of stuff to actually get to the level of, you know, I have my driver's license to I'm a professional race car driver. That's, that's another great question. Um, 
So I'm actually going to answer that the same way. So I, I founded and run a bunch of sleepaway teen racing camps in upstate New York. So I've answered that question a lot in the context of actually parents being like, okay, why should I sign my kid up for this? Um, and the answer I always give is it, it training for racing is very different from training for driving on the street, right? Like just kind of working on getting your license, but generally the skills kind of apply in it from A to B, but not the opposite, right? So like all of the skills that are important to learning how to race a car are very important when learning to drive a car safely on the roads. And I actually think that like you were asking about the differentiating factor, I think that we should teach more people to drive cars on the limit because it will make them safer when they're driving below the limit on the road. Um, I, I would say the main thing that separates it is, hmm, A, I mean, just kind of logistically, um, I'm using every inch of track wherever possible. I can feel every kind of nook and cranny of the car, like every single minor change you make to a car setup, I feel. And part of that is just because the race car itself is set up to have you feel everything, right? Like from, uh, it's set up to go as quickly as possible, whereas most street cars are set up to be as comfortable as possible. So like when you're, a, a great example is um like when you're braking, going into a stop sign, or when you're kind of doing a really like, kind of long, slow 180 degree turn on the road. Um, both of those, the car is designed to make it feel better for you, not necessarily to go faster. So going into a street car after being in a race car, it kind of feels like a couch. Like as you're turning it, like it kind of rolls over very slowly versus in a car, in a race car, everything's much more violent. Um, but I think it's much easier to train. I mean, I'm personally biased. I think it's easier to train to be a race car driver first and then transition over to street driving than the other way around, because otherwise you develop kind of habits that you wouldn't in a car that is similar to a race car that's kind of engineered for speed. I don't know if that was necessarily the answer you're looking for, but it's, it's actually a very different type of driving completely. Sitting here, I definitely kind of wish that that's how I learned how to drive. (laughs) I feel like that, that just kind of makes you like, you know, enjoy the car and appreciate it as well and really understand how to handle it. When, when you actually have like an event coming up, what is, what does that look like? Are you training for like that specific event or are you training every day, every week? What's that structured like? Mm, So it's very hard to, so obviously the best way to train for your sport is to do your sport. That's true. And pretty much, um, and I mean, any ball sport whatsoever, it's also true of racing, right? So the kind of golden standard for training for a race is actually testing at that track. Um, and at this is, I mean, there's this phrase in racing, it's like testing, testing, testing. Like that's the, that is the key to success. It's also ungodly expensive to drive race cars. Um, and if you don't have the sponsorship money to spend on kind of miscellaneous expenses like that, you don't. So that's a very long answer. Um, I think so, so we do as much testing as possible leading up to a race. A great example is I'm actually heading to, um, you guys are going to be the first to hear this news. Um, I'm heading to Sonoma this week to test at Sonoma Raceway in advance of my first race this year in early March. Um, so we actually do have the luxury to go testing, which is great. Um, and separately from that, you try to train in as many, you try to cross train in as many parallel ways as possible. So I do absolute minimum three days of strength training a week. Um, I do multiple, at, at least one or two runs a week that mimic the amount of time that I'm in a car at once. So my car for, for context, uh, can reach temperatures up to like 140 degrees Fahrenheit inside the car. Um, you experience multiple G's every single time you turn. It's actually a very kind of, it's very hard on your body and it requires a ton of endurance. So if I know I'm going to be in a race a month from now, where I'm going to be in those types of conditions for an hour, I tried to do a run or a bike ride or something that mimics uh, what my heart rate would be and the conditions that I would be in for that hour. So that's kind of the second step. And, and usually for most people, it's a combination of the two. So for example, I, I literally just got back from the gym. I'm going to fly out tomorrow to go testing at Sonoma. When I come back, I'll be right at the gym again. Okay. So I think it's kind of crazy because right now you're calling in from your phone and we don't, we have our cameras off just to make the connectivity a little bit better, but like, it would be so funny if you actually just saw Gio and I, like, as you were describing all that, or like you said 140 degrees, our jaws just kind of dropped. Because uh, <laughs> again, like, you know, I, I follow a couple different racing, um, you know, events and, and things like that, but I never actually think, you know, if I get in the car, it's just something I go, like I go to Starbucks, right. And I grab a coffee yeah, and, yeah. and you never actually think about the actual training. So one question I had is like, 
you know, from a, an actual strength training standpoint, are there, is it like rounds, like, you know, full body workouts every single time? Mm. Do you have a trainer that you're working on specific core muscles with? And then also like, this probably varies event to event, but like endurance wise, are you in that car for like an hour, four hours, you know, five hours? How does, yeah. that, how does that all work? Super interesting. Uh, so in terms of, to answer, to answer your first question, um, from a strength training standpoint, what you're training is actually extremely dependent on the car you're driving. So you're, you asked a super in the weeds question. So I'm going to give you a very in the weeds answer. Um, for example, the car that I've driven the last two years is a BMW M4 GT4. That car this is super specific, has a really, really tough brake pedal. Um, and that that's for multiple reasons. It's, uh, it's because of the size of the calipers of the car and on the master cylinders and all sorts of stuff. Um, so because there's a super hard brake pedal on that car, in order to prep for those races, I was doing a lot more leg-focused exercises and a lot more um, kind of hip and lateral movement exercises because I was usually, wh whenever you're turning, right, uh, just because of inertia, like when I'm I'm doing a right-hand corner, for example, my whole body weight is shifting to the left and I'm actually using my core muscles, including my hips to kind of hold myself in the seat. Um, so I was doing a ton of like training for that car. That'll be a little bit less relevant for the car I'm in now. I'm going to be more focused on um, core, which is just kind of a standard across every type of car, right? If you're, if you're turning and you need to hold yourself in one place and also from a safety component, um, you know, crashing is unfortunately relatively frequent in racing, right? Like it's not if it's when, and you need your body to be ready for it. So just having that kind of basic core level strength is really important. Um, and particularly for cars with much more downforce. So for example, I tested a car called a Lamar prototype, uh, I think at some point last year, um, that car requires way more upper body and neck strength. Like I could barely turn my neck for a week after testing that car for a day because I don't specifically train for it as much. So it, it super varies. Right now, I'm much more on full body and core specifically, but that will totally change depending on what my plans are for 2022, especially during the off season. Um, and in terms of the answer for how long I'm in the car, so I do something called endurance racing. So I don't know if you guys saw the movie Ford versus Ferrari, but Great I do movie. that type of racing. It, it was super good movie. So, so I do like long, long races. Um, I do races that are anywhere from an hour to 25 hours is actually the longest race I've done. And it's multiple drivers, but the car itself is on track all 25 hours. So if I'm in a car where a stint in, so the car, if the car makes it, for example, 50 minutes on tires and fuel, um, I'll usually come in after 50 minutes. I'll do anywhere from one to three stints. So anywhere from like 50 minutes to two hour 40. Um, every time I come in tire, you know, tires get replaced, car gets refueled. And then once it makes strategic sense to do so, you switch out with your co-driver. So you actually get out of the car and a co-driver gets in while they're changing all four tires and putting fuel in the car. That whole process takes anywhere from like 25 to 50 seconds. Um, and it just, you know, and, and so on and so forth for as long as the race is. So training will frequently actually before 24 hour races look like, like multiple workouts within one day, right? Like you'll do like a long bike ride for three hours and stop and eat lunch. And then you go out for another three hours. Um, most endurance racing is really just this endless cycle of like you drive and then you come in and then you eat and drink as much as you can physically stomach, right? Like it's just like as many calories as you can get in at once. And then you sleep and then you get back in the car. Like that is, that's pretty much the cycle. So you do get time to sleep. What, like, what is a break time look like? Are you sleeping for like 30 seconds or can you get like a good half an hour in? You, you can get more. Well, hmm, technically you can usually get a couple hours in. that very rarely happens in practice because your adrenaline is just so high and you don't want to miss anything, right? Like you, you could fall asleep and wake up and your co-driver has crashed your car and you've missed it. And you, it's like more of a control thing actually. So it's very hard to fall asleep. Um, but if I was in the car for two hours and 30 minutes, for example, I'm very likely going to have like a five hour resting period because I'll have two other co-drivers to sub in after me. And all right, just, this is just a kind of a side note question, but like, do you ever wear like a Fitbit or an Apple watch when you're in these cars? I'm so curious, like what your heart rate gets to as you're just yeah. going down like hundreds of miles an hour. So I've, I've never actually worn an Apple watch or a Fitbit in the car. Um, but for a long, for a couple years now, actually I've worn, uh, chest straps, and I actually been working on a study with Michigan State to compare 
my physiological performance as a female driver to my male co-driver counterparts to figure out if women have any sort of disadvantage behind the wheel, assuming that they're kind of strength training correctly and things like that. Um, and, and I guess this is a side note, but we found there's actually no difference, which is really cool to have da- to have data backing that up. Um, but my heart rate is anywhere from 120 to 170 beats per minute the whole time I'm in the car. It usually peaks right at the race start. And then um, it's pretty like direct, it directly correlated to the amount of action, right? Um, but it never, ever dips below like 100, uh, 110, 120. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of effort, actually. I think people sometimes don't realize how much of a workout racing is, but you can easily, you, you almost always drop multiple pounds of, bo- of, uh, water weight, right. Just because you're sweating so much. Um, and you lose a lot of calories. So I will usually come in and eat like, like really, really dense, like peanut butter and bananas, right? Like as much as I, as, as many calories and as little volume as I can possibly take. So I remember like a year ago, I watched a Mythbusters episode and it was basically comparing what is more dangerous driving when you're like slightly drunk, not really like hammered, but like, you know, you've had a couple beers um, versus driving when you're really tired. And so like they would keep people up for like, you know, a full day and they'd be like, all right, cool. Now go drive for an hour. Oh, interesting. Um, and, And I think what ended up they ended up finding was that usually people who are more mentally fatigued actually had way more either accidents or they swerved out of the lane way more often than when you were actually inebriated. So I'd be really curious when you're driving, is it like after these long races, is it that you're just so physically defeated and like, you know, you're just drained your entire body is shot or is the mental side of it really tough? Just like staying alert, staying focused, especially <laughs> going around a turn at like over a hundred miles an hour. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so physically, uh, so races, race weekends usually last like Thursday through Sunday. Cause you have multiple practices and you qualify and, and things like that. Um, usually I get home Sunday night or Monday morning. I, if, if it's even remotely possible to not do anything on Monday, like I will clear my schedule and sleep the entire day. And you're also emotion, you're also mentally exhausted, right? Because it's, um, racing is physical, but it's also, it just requires so much focus because everything is moving so quickly. Like I was actually just talking to a girl that I'm coaching about this yesterday. Um, she got distracted for like half of a second, right? She was actually thinking about how the person in front of her, like wasn't on the correct racing line. And in that time she totaled her car. It it just moves so fast. Um, so just that amount of commitment mentally and emotionally to something is just really, really tiring. So I also will usually not like, like anything that requires that much mental effort. I try to delay until at least Monday afternoon. Cause usually Monday I'm just like alternating between drinking coffee and just like napping and staring at the ceiling. I, I had, I had almost no idea that it was this. <laughs> like Connor and I keep looking at each other. Um, I mean, I don't really even drive my car until it's, you know, warmed up to the right temperature. But so <laughs> which is really good, by the way. Well, now I know I'm doing the right thing. What is what does a team look like in this situation? You're right, you're racing for hours and hours on end. You have mm-hmm. multiple team members, and then there's also, I mean, I'm imagining like a massive back end team, right? The, yes. you know, the, pit, crew, the, the pit crew coaches. Yep. Like, is it, was it 30, 40 people, 20 people? It's crazy. I'm so glad you asked this question because race car drivers get so much credit. And honestly, like we are 10% of the puzzle that it takes to make all of this work. So for context, um, in the race that I ran at Daytona last year, we probably had 15 crew members on my car. So you need someone on the back end handling transportation and logistics for everyone, which is infinitely more complicated now because a lot of people who fly in for these races to work are actually international, um, which is all sorts of actually scary from a COVID standpoint. Um, but, but yeah, so every, you need to handle the logistics of people from literally around the world flying into one specific location, making sure that they have lodging, that they have transportation, that they're fed, right? Um, you need to make sure that they have credentials to actually enter the event because you technically need like a license as a crew member to do all of this. Um, you have a truck driver and some and a tire specialist and a fuel specialist and you need people to actually change the tires, which is super hard, actually. Um, uh, I've seen some of these YouTube. I've seen some of the YouTube crazy. videos where it's basically someone comes in and then there's immediately all four tires are off. Meanwhile, I spend like a half an hour just trying to jack up the car and change one tire. It's crazy. I mean, we so I was a tire roller actually for a race. Um, 
for the, the team that I'm on, but a different series. It this past January at Daytona. So I wasn't changing the tire. It was literally like I was holding the tires over the pit wall for them to grab in the process. And we usually change all four tires or we can change all four tires in under 30 seconds easy. Um, and that's again, like taking all four tires off, putting all four tires on. Um, it's a, it's freaking insane. Like it's, it's, it's super impressive. So all of these people are specifically flying in and almost all of these guys, I think it's important to mention, like they are frequently undercredited, right? Um, they are usually like, it's, racing is very much a gig economy. Like you tend to contract with a team either race by race or year by year and everyone floats around a lot. So it's, it's a ton of hustle and the people who are in the sport, like really care about it enough to live honestly, a super volatile lifestyle. That's really interesting. And I think earlier in this conversation, you were talking about how expensive the sport can be. And I think mm -hmm. like my mind, it just immediately jumped to, okay, the cars and the engines and like all of that stuff is has to be like hands down where a lot of the expenses are coming from. But it sounds like the team itself, just flying people in, paying for lodging, paying, yeah. for, like, paying for the team, right? That's a super expensive part of the sport. I'd love to know how sponsorships work. Like, do you have to have someone mm. on your crew, on your team that's directly reaching out and getting sponsorships for the car, for the team? Or what does that whole process look like? So, okay, I'm going to break down the whole racing business model and like ideally under a minute. Um, I love that. So, so there are different ways you, okay. Race teams require money, right? The largest expense to your point is usually the crew, um, and just running the car in the first place. The second most expensive is parts, right? So tires, consumables, engines, things like that. Um, you can get that money a few different ways. One is you can personally fund it as a driver. And that actually happens a lot. Like the, if you actually look at the origins of the vast majority of Formula One drivers, they come from incredibly wealthy families. And that's just the kind of unfortunate reality of the sport is that like even go-karting when you're younger can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And anyone who has the amount of income to even put their kid in something like that in the first place can generally like has some money to spend, right? Um, the other way you can do it is the driver can raise sponsorship money personally. So that's generally what I do. And then I contract with teams or sometimes I'll actually come onto a team that has raised sponsorship money themselves. So those are kind of like the generally either the driver has to bring sponsorship money or the team does. Right. And um, one way that teams will raise sponsorship money is if you ever hear of like factory backed programs, for example, um, factory backed programs means a manufacturer like Ford or Mazda or BMW or Porsche they are going to a team and saying like, okay, we will pay you X million dollars to run these cars for the year, but you handle everything else. Like you are responsible for getting the cars there, contracting with drivers, um, everything. So that it's, it, that's kind of the second most common way after drivers bringing in their own sponsorship money. Can you, do you win money? How, like, how does that work? It sounds like a lot of money going out. Does money, does money ever come back? <laughs> you, you just hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so you can win money. Um, prize money will almost never pay for the actual cost of racing. Almost never. I mean, I probably got enough prize money in 2018 when I finished second in the championship to offset my costs for one race out of five or six. Um, so it's very hard. If, if you want to make money in racing you need to either bring in more sponsorship money than it costs to run the car. Um, or, uh, you know, if, if, or you need to find a team that has factory backing or significant sponsorship backing that has the kind of bandwidth to give you a salary, but it's very, it's, it's yes, there is a lot of money going out <laughs> racing at the end of the day is actually one giant marketing expense, right? Like the racing world is funded by, companies and you know mostly car companies who want to show that their their cars their products are capable of doing things like this of being pushed to the limit non-stop for 24 hours and still functioning perfectly um so that's where the majority of the money comes from but in many ways it's not actually meant to be a money-making endeavor and it, it isn't most of the time unfortunately so you can you can totally punt this question if you think it's like too personal but i'd be really curious to know like is it in terms of the actual money spent on an average team, are we talking like $500,000 a year or like 5 million or 50 million? Like, I, I just have no idea what the scale yeah. would even look like for something like that. So I'm totally, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, it depends on the series and the car. So 
full season in, in pro racing, which is very specific, right? Like the, the most budget form of racing you can do. And also it's totally like one of the most awesome forms of racing, in my opinion, is just amateur racing in Mazda Miatas. Like those cars have a cult following in the racing world because they are, if you don't come from really insane amounts of money, it's the only way you can really get involved in the sport. And they're also super cheap, super fun. Um, obviously, you know, cheap relative to other things in racing. Um, in pro racing, really the cheapest thing you can find is like 300,000 for a full season. And that's very entry level. That's if you're running something like a touring car, it's a lot slower. Um, generally the prize money and the visibility is also going to be lower in turn. Right. So it's, you know, the, the, the risk and the reward are both much smaller. Um, and as you go up in the ranks, so GT4 cars, something that I'm running can be anywhere from like. 400,000 to a million dollars a year to run. And it just goes up from there. So the cars that I might be running in 2022, depending on some <laughs> outstanding contracts now, that would be anywhere from like two to 5 million to run. So that's, and that's where you end up kind of in this middle ground where you generally have drivers that are bringing in some sponsorship money, or they're using their sponsorship money to pay themselves but you also have teams that have some factory backing. Like it gets a lot, um, it gets a lot more ambiguous once you get to that level. And Formula One, you're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars. What? What? So, what's the biggest difference then between like a three hundred thousand dollar race or a, you know a five million dollar one? Is it? It's a car, mm. but then just a huge more um, you know cost in terms of the crew. Uh, yes. So it's the the. Biggest difference is actually that just the type of race you're running, right? So um, an endurance race tends to just be ungodly expensive because you're paying these poor people to stay up for 24 hours. Um, and you also, you you get what you pay for, right? If you get like a really, really top of the line tire changer, your price, your, the price you are paying is going to reflect that. Um, and in every race series, there will always be budget teams and like really, really standout teams. Um, and the other differentiating factor is the cars. So for example, the, I ran a couple years in Mazdas when I was like 15 to 16, um, super amazing learning experience and comparatively much cheaper, but because the cars like just kind of don't have the same oomph that like a GT3 Porsche has, right. Um, it's not going to get the same amount of visibility. So you are generally paying for, not just the type of race and the type of car, but also then kind of the recognition it receives, right? Like the races that I'm in this year are also going to be on CBS Sports. So I've got to imagine that when you were growing up and in high school and you were racing cars and you were getting into the sport, like my assumption would be that all of your friends were playing lacrosse and volleyball and football yeah. and things <laughs> like that. Like, so you must have been the only one to actually be racing. Like, how did that impact you in school? Because I'm guessing you were traveling a lot for it, uh, especially yeah. during high school. Um, I think to be honest, I, I think most people that I went to high school with didn't quite understand what I was doing. And I was also fine with that. I, I think I, I entered, you know, I think, I think part of the weird nuance, like one of the weird nuances of the racing world in general is it's just really small and it's incredibly tightly knit. And I, because I became involved in this community when I was a lot younger, like I didn't really, I, I by the time I graduated high school, I was definitely closer with a lot of people in the racing world than I was with people in my high school itself. Um, and because of that, I also honestly act really different. Like, like my friends when I was like 15, 18 years old were mostly like mid twenties guys, which in retrospect, probably horrible decision-making, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it just, it, you know, it was, it was a totally different world and a totally different mentality. Like the way that you interact with a 25 year old guy, when they basically view you as like their little sister, is just very different from the way that you react, that you, you know, react to like interaction with a 16 year old girl. Um, so I never necessarily like fit in. And I, I was kind of fine with that because I had people that I loved and cared about and they're still my family now. Yeah. You kind of, you know, built up your own, your own network and around the sport you love, which makes sense. Exactly. That, and yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. So I'm, I'm still like really intrigued on, you know, how does someone get into it if, if, you know, they're thinking about it, like, you know, mm -hmm. you have maybe 14, 15, 16 year old person listening to this. 
what would your tip be to, you know, how do they take that to the next level? Would the goal really be that they should get a, you know, get a Mazda, learn how to drive it and like enter in the local stuff? Or is there any, any, you know, tips and tricks on how to get more involved in the industry? Um, I love that you asked this question because this is a question I answer all the time for That's why I founded my, my initiative girls with drive, because it's like, there, there are, this is almost an unanswerable question, right? Cause the, the real answer is yes. Like the, the best route is getting into a Mazda, doing as much local stuff as you can, but that isn't achievable for a ton of people. Like, like, you know, racing in Mazdas is also expensive. It's just not as expensive as running in a professional race series. Um, so part of the, I, I guess to answer your question, the, the answer and the advice I would give is, um, two things. One is just networking, right? Like network as much as possible. Um, start going to races, start introducing yourself to people, uh, literally like following people on Instagram and DMing them, right? Like racing is, uh, it's very tightly knit, but it's also, I would actually argue a relatively friendly sport. And particularly if you start at like the lower levels, people are generally excited to impart some advice or some wisdom, or at least introduce you to people. Um, and the other piece I would say is, is, everyone dislikes this in the racing world, but social media is actually becoming extremely important. So like racing is very much a fake it till you make it situation. Like when I was running in Mazdas, when I was 15, 16, I was posting nonstop, like, you know, great, like first race weekend, like can't thank my sponsor enough. And like, you know, hashtagging and tagging every single person I could possibly think of. Um, but building a brand does matter. And, you know, if you, you can either get involved in the sport by having enough money to start out in something like a Mazda or a go-kart. And if you don't have the option, um, you have to build a brand and then find, and that's your back-end route, right? Is you, if you can have enough of a following that you can actually attract sponsorship to get you in at the initial level, that's golden because otherwise, you know, you can reach out to a sponsor and they say, okay, but where's your results? And if you have never been on a track before, you need some way to deliver value. That's awesome. And I'm really glad that you just brought up Girls with Drive because that was exactly where I wanted to head to next. Um, so just for anyone listening today, can you talk about what Girls with Drive does on a day-to-day or on an annual basis um, and just give listeners some kind of ideas to what scale you guys are at today? Sure. So I started Girls with Drive a few years ago in direct response to honestly, a lot of the girls I had met at the racetrack. Um, There's this one very specific moment where I came up with the idea for Girls with Drive. And it was actually a young girl coming up to me while I was still in Mazdas um, and saying, I didn't know girls were allowed to race. And that was super, just like, like daggered, like twisted, right? Because um, I was like, it's one thing to think that it's hard to get involved in the racing world. It's hard for anyone to get a foot into the, the door, you know? But um, the word allowed is just so specific. It's like, I didn't even know that this was a career path that was available to me in the first place. Um, so the goal of girls with drive is to specifically reach out to young girls. So age five through 18 to change that. Um, and the reason I specifically try to reach out to young girls is because there are a ton of initiatives right now, particularly kind of in the wake of the me too movement that try to help women in racing. Right. So for example, like women who are in Mazdas that show a lot of potential trying to push them up or women in pro racing who need extra sponsorship money. Like now is actually a great time to be a woman in racing. Um, but it doesn't, that's a bandaid on the much larger issue, which is that like, we just have a virtually non-existent pipeline of young girls getting involved. So it, I run educational programs at the racetrack. They are free. Um, and therefore young girls, I separate them by age group and I have two different programs. So one is kind of the STEM and engineering side of racing and they get to kind of climb in the car. They get to touch all the different buttons, but then they actually turn it on, right? We pop the hood. We talk about what everything kind of under the hood is, um, why it looks the way it does. They go to the tire factory on site and they get to see what different types of tires look like and why they're made that way. Um, and I try to break everything down into like, you know, the, the equivalent of the math or science class that they would be in in school, which is, I actually think, a really great way to get kids not just involved in motorsports, but also in school, right? Like science and math is kind of awful until you understand that like it is behind some of the coolest inventions ever. Like race cars are all just physics. Um so trying to impart as much of that as possible. And the other side is the business of racing, which is obviously geared towards much older kids. 
but I try to introduce them to as many other women in the industry in every capacity, right? Because to your point about crew members earlier, drivers are one piece of the like really massive puzzle of what it takes to make a successful team. So I have introduced them to team managers. Um, actually, this woman, Jamie Eversley, who was a truck driver and a tire chief for the car I was on last year, one of the coolest people I have ever met. And she spent a bunch of time with Girls With Drive last year. So the goal is just to get them exposure. Um, they come in for free. They objectively get an experience that like most adult racing fans would die for. Um, and then they stay in contact with each other. So I also have a uh, sleepaway teen racing camp. I think I mentioned this earlier. And we've had about 50% female participation. And I've looped a lot of those girls into the Girls with Drive program. So a couple of them might actually be racing next year in pro racing, which I'm trying to help them raise sponsorship money for that. But that would be really, really cool. That's got to be so exciting, like watching the transition from having, you know, that one girl come up to you to now you've been able to help, right? So many people achieve this, these, their, their goals and their dreams of probably getting a race car and, and racing. So it's definitely awesome to hear. Do you have specific goals? Like, do you have like a, you know, I wanted to help, you know, this many girls this year get into, you know, the, the industry, or is it kind of just try to help as many people that come through the door with an interest? The goal, so I'm actually limited based on the number of experiences I can run. And that in of itself is based off of the number of pro races there are. So part of, and you're actually hitting on, frankly, a concern that I've had for the program in of itself is that it's, um, my next step would be to scale internationally and it's very hard. Um, so right now my goal is every single race that i'm in or every single race i can conceivably run a program and that's also dependent on like i need to bring in sponsors to actually comp the tickets for these girls um i try to bring in a minimum of 30 kids per day per program so that amounts up to like 30 to 60 kids per race weekend that i run the program and i'm hoping Right now, I can't really run programs in person for the foreseeable future, but I'm hoping when I come back to run at least like three in-person programs this year. Um, and I'm also actually hoping to go online this year. Like I, I went online and did a couple of Zoom classes last year, which was cool. But I actually think in retrospect, instead of doing something live, like I, I was really trying hard to have that like authentic interaction that I'm used to having in person with these girls. And I kind of realized that that's actually like not the best way to have a really massive impact. Um, so I'm hoping to create a bunch of online videos that are basically like simulations of the, these programs that I could put up at some point this year. So, so smart. some happy plans, but yeah, I'm also just like really awful with, I'm, I'm trying to get better about posting on social media consistently, but like, I have never once edited a video in my life. Like I have many things to figure out before I get to that point. Um, but hopefully it happens at some point this year. That's awesome. And honestly, with everyone having a TikTok and uh, a phone these days, I'm sure that it wouldn't be too hard just to try to outsource the actual video editing. Everyone these days seems to be a, a content creator one way or another. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so quick question for you. So, all right, so you're correct me if I'm wrong. You're 22, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So you're 22, uh, female in a sport that is absolutely from everything I've read dominated by like older guys, right? That's, that's pretty accurate. Yes, that is. That's very accurate. <laughs> um, can you just give people an idea? Like, I mean, one, one thing alone for just from being a, a guy, it's like, how does that impact you, I guess, in the actual sport, hmm. um, like, does, do you ever think about it? Is it something that you're pretty conscious about or is it something that, uh, you, you don't think about anymore at this point? Cause you've been doing it so long, but you recognize that it's probably a pretty big barrier for other people who yeah. don't necessarily like, I think the, the classic example is like, you want to look up to your role models. And if you don't necessarily see any female professional drivers out mm -hmm. there, then you're like, okay, well, is this really attainable? Um, I would love to know like what your thoughts are on that. And if it ever impacts you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the, if you can't see it, you can't be it mentality. I think that's completely true. And, um, in terms of kind of how it affects you in the sport. So I actually should give some background context on this. Uh, there were very, very few women in racing for a long time. There were kind of like one-offs and it would literally be one woman worldwide, like per generation, right? There's like kind of that one standout in the 1930s and that one standout in the 1960s. Um, and then there's obviously Danica Patrick. So that's the best interview question ever is the like, oh, you're going to be the next Danica Patrick. I'm like, all right. I mean, that's entirely just because I have long hair like her, but that's fine. Um, but there have been 
a lot more women that have kind of found their way into the racing world very recently. When I say very recently, like when I first started pro racing in um, 2015, I had never not been the only girl on track. I mean, like other women in racing were still incredibly rare and like dozens of girls have popped up in the span of the last two years. So given that context, I do think that it has become actually easier to be a woman in motorsport. And if anything, right now, sponsors are actually catching on that like there are women out there that are incredibly talented. Um, and the majority of the automotive purchasing power in North America is women, right? So it like would make sense to have a woman driving your car. Um, so in, in that sense, it actually has been great. Like, I think that opportunities have really proliferated for women. Um, the flip side of that is like, obviously there's still a lot of gender bias and I actually see it less, it's, it's less day to day and it's less among kind of the crew members or like it, it doesn't happen casually, so to speak. Right. Like, and that's partially because, um, most of these guys, I mean, I've known most of these guys for decades and they think of me as their sister if anything, I actually think it's much more sinister than that. It's like um, women in racing are generally treated equally, but the barriers to entry for women in motorsports are still somewhat high in the sense that like, like they look at me like their sister, but not another woman, if that makes sense. Like there's definitely a bit of a mental disconnect between the way that I've seen myself treated, which is actually, I would argue, fairly generous versus the way that I've seen other women treated in the sport. Um, I think that it's still overall a sexist industry. And I think that people need to contend with like the way that they talk about some women versus others. I don't know if that was really a satisfactory answer. It's kind of hard to give like specific examples. Um, one is this is, this is very specific. Um, but I don't know if you know what grid girls are, cause that's like a very niche phrase, but for a long time, and this, this is still true in most racing, not in formula one anymore, but there used to be women who would wear like super tight spandex outfits and high heels and they'd have the sponsor logos on it. So like, you know, it was frequently Pirelli for, for series like Pirelli World Challenge or in Formula One or things like that. Um, and that's died down a lot. But that was that, that was one of my first like, wait a minute, I think I'm catching on to something moments in terms of sexism in the racing industry was watching the way that men interact with those girls versus the way that they interact with me. That was, that was a very like long-winded explanation. Um, I think it's getting... Short answers, I think it's getting a lot better. I think that the next step for the racing world is not to just give like pre-existing women in racing opportunities, but to also contend with the way that we look at women's role in motorsports as a whole. Do you have any advice for guys that, you know, might be in a male-dominated industry or, or sport and how, you know, what 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 can they do to make it a more diverse group and, and be, mm -hmm. you know, more welcoming for, for females and just, you know, not a bunch of guys. That's a great, I, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. Um, I would actually say just go to the women directly and don't be shy about like asking their advice. Right. I think, um, not, I, I think that frequently this, this is honestly very similar to conversations that I think everyone in the United States were having with their friends in May and June about like, how can I best be an ally in this situation? And I think that the answer then was like having very honest, awkward conversations about kind of your own blind spots and the way that you can be helpful. And I think that the same thing would apply to your female counterparts in motorsports. Right. Um, and I know at least based on my experiences, I would say, this sounds really bad, but I actually think I've been treated very well relative to most women. And part of that is because I came into the sport when I was very young. Um, and most of the guys I know really look at me as their sister and not kind of a 22 year old girl, right? Because I didn't start off having that type of relationship with them. Um, so I think also just kind of suspending, like, like trying as hard as you possibly can to treat this person exactly the same way that you would treat a guy in racing. That's very hard for people like it. And, and that goes both ways, right? Like I actually think that it's really important in racing to like recognize, like, like people will make jokes sometimes. And I think it's important to like have a thick skin, right? Realize like, I, I don't know. That was, that was, um, I ended up rambling a little bit there. I think that it is 
important to treat people equally for better or for worse, right? That would be my advice. And just be and just be open to awkward conversations about when you potentially are not treating someone as an equal for better or for worse. Right. But I mean, and it's, it's a long answer too, because of the fact that there's no one right answer. Uh, like, I think mm-hmm. you kind of still hit the nail on the head though, of saying like, it's that, that kindergarten golden rule, right? Just like treat people the way you would want to be treated. And if the second that you go and start treating people differently because of like their race, gender, whatever it is, uh, that's kind of when issues start to arise. Um, yeah. but I think, yeah. I think you said it very well. Um, and it's, and it's hard, right? Because I think uh, part of the reason I'm hedging about this a little bit is because this, this is as important for women in the industry to hear as it is for guys to hear. Like, so this is, this is a very specific moment. And I obviously am not going to name names, but I was in a race at one point, uh, years ago, like really years ago where I ended up in an incident with another female driver actually. And at that point, like I was still really excited because there were two of us like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually approached her after the race because um, you see all of the stereotypical, like awkward, con- like the like really contentious, like fights that happen in, in motorsports after races, like those, those do happen. Um, so I was walking up to her to basically ask for an explanation. Right. Um, and she said like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like I'm kind of new with this. Like, I'm just a girl. The words I'm just a girl came out of her mouth. And I was like, wait a minute. No, like, first of all, that advice, like, like that statement would never work on me out of all people, because I'm also just a girl and I'm years younger than you. (laughs) But, but second of all, like, that's not an excuse. Like you have to earn respect just like every other man on track does. Right. And if you make a mistake, you also are accountable for it. Um, So I think as much as men kind of as much as men in the industry need to have open minds about receiving feedback, I think it's very important for women in the industry to do the same exact thing. Yeah. And I feel like it, that's a really great story. Cause imagine if you got in a fight with anyone after a race event or anything like that, and it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm just a guy, like, give me a break. Right. Like I think as soon as you start holding yourself to a different standard is when you start noticing that a lot, a lot bigger issues start to arise. Exactly. Um, and I definitely think that like, even just in the past couple of years, like I think that we still have a long way to go, especially in certain industries for making things more equitable across different genders. But I think it's really cool to see like, you know, you think of UFC as a predominantly like male driven sport. And then next thing you yeah. know, you see like Holly Holmes and Ronda Rousey turn around and like absolutely like, you know, dominate the Ronda sport. Ronda Rousey is so cool. She's so badass, so cool. right? She's so badass. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, I mean, even like, like this year, right? Like you see Kamala Harris, like the first vice president who's a female ever right and so i think that these barriers are starting to be brought down um i mean i think if i had to go and make an assumption as to how it can be broken down even more it's exactly what you just said like don't treat yourself differently like just kind of go into the same mentality and even though maybe other people might treat you differently like you can't hold that standard for yourself do you have any advice for girls like even just outside of racing at this point who are looking to break into more like male dominated industries like literally whether that is um, you know, finance or I don't know. I don't think politics yeah. is super male driven, but maybe it is. Um, any, any advice on how they should go about treating that? Mm, I would say exactly what you just said. Right. I think, um, I mean, two things, right. So that there are two, there are two sides to this coin. Um, one is that, you know, if you are careful and very strategic about it, being a woman can play to your advantage, right? Like you, I've actually found that it's really easier for me to be like friendly with people that like, I actually tend to have much more genuine conversations with a lot of people in the racing world than I think sometimes guys have with guys. Um, I've developed really great friendships, right? Like I think that, and from a sponsorship standpoint, it plays to your advantage, just like basic supply demand, right? There's very low supply of us. So there's high demand. Um, The flip side of that is I think it's important to use what you have at your disposal while also recognizing that you are still subject to the same exact deliverables as everyone else is, right? Like you are not like, it's kind of the classic, like if like, like the, the really like stereotypical fear of like, does uh, affirmative action mean that like someone who is objectively less qualified than me is going to get the job over me. And that's not really what it is. Like at the minimum, you need to be as qualified as anyone else is for the program, right? Um, And that's true in the racing world. That's true in life, right? Like every time I go out on track, no one looks at my car and thinks, oh, there's a girl in it. They look at a car and think, okay, that's the next car I have to pass and vice versa. Like the gender doesn't exist in a race car. 
Um, but, and that ideally would be true anywhere, right? So do your absolute best, um, use what you can to your advantage with the understanding that you still have to perform and that you are kind of responsible for, for your own success, so to speak. Yeah, that's very well said. I also think, well, so first of all, I want to correct myself. I think I just said that, uh, politics is not super male driven. Definitely is. Uh, I'm correcting <laughs> myself there real quick. Um, but, uh, I also like what you said about how it could actually, if you use it correctly, be seen as an advantage. And I think like yeah. part of this entire podcast is basically finding people in their twenties, people who are young, who are doing incredibly cool things, whether that's in business sports or like, you know, in the creator economy. Um, and I think, it kind of goes to say, like, I, I've mentioned this example a couple of different times before, but like, if you're a student at college and you're running, you know, a three or four or $5 million business, that is incredibly impressive, right? Cause you're, you're really young. You're not expected to go and achieve any yeah. of that kind of stuff. And so like actually being young and being a student can get you a ton of advantages. Whereas if you're 45 years old, I'm not saying that running a three to $5 million business at the age of 45 isn't cool. It's absolutely cool. But I think the other way to look at it is like, you're probably not going to get pressed for that. You probably aren't going to go and get a ton of resources and people might not be as interested in connecting with you as opposed to if you're, you know, 20, 21, whatever. Um, and I think not saying necessarily that being a female entirely can like can be an advantage, but in a male driven sport, it's a good way to kind of like differentiate yourself. Um, Absolutely. And, and kind of the, like play it like yeah. that. Yeah. So some of the best advice I ever got actually was this is, this is like, it actually came from someone in finance. So it's funny that you mentioned finance. Um, and she said, it's, it's better to be different than to try to be the best because you are almost never going to be the best at something, right? So the way that you differentiate yourself is you make yourself unique, right? Like realistically, pro racing is so competitive that like no matter how much I trained, there are still going to be people that are faster than me. And there will also still be a bunch of people that are slower than me. Like that's just the nature of the sport is it's so dependent on just track time and knowing these tiny little nuances about like, okay, at 4 PM, like the sun sets on this track in such a way that like, there will be more grip here instead of two inches to the left. Like, like people really know that stuff. So I'm never going, you know, I can be as quick as I can possibly be. I can still win races, right? I'm not going to kind of like downplay myself. Um, but the flip side of that is like, you need to use everything you have to your advantage. And like, I, am different. And that has honestly served me extremely well. Like the fact that I'm a student, again, there's kind of like there, there's, there's give and take to that. On the one hand, I'm super busy, but on the other hand, I'm like really one of the only professional drivers that is in college full-time. So that also kind of differentiates you, right? So finding that edge is, is really helpful in terms of kind of making a name for yourself. And I, I'm very glad that that woman gave me that advice. I love that quote. I feel like that really sums up kind of almost a lot of, I don't know, the world or, or the country or whatever, but, you know, just uh, better to be different than the best. Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes yeah. you stand out. And uh, I think even like applying for jobs, right? Like if you apply the same way everyone else applies, you send in the same resume, right? Your, your chance of getting accepted is just so, so low, right? But if you, if you separate yeah. yourself, you send something unique or you, you reach out to people, I think it's just so applicable over a bunch of different industries. Aurora, you definitely Absolutely. know Downey's Cider, right? Because you're up in Cambridge right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so funny. One of our buddies actually wanted to go and get a job there. And so you could have gone and submitted his resume online, but instead what he did was built the website, uh, hiremedowneastcider.com. And then basically like made it look just like their website, put up his resume, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I think he got the offer too, which is actually kind of just like exactly. That's point, so cool. Right? Be different than yeah. the best. So yeah, Mac I actually had a story at one point about, so someone, it's not a friend, it was a friend of a friend, but he was really trying to get a job at Airbnb. And they were like not paying attention to him. So at one point, I don't, I don't, I'm missing part of the story here because I don't quite understand why it's funny. But the end of it is like he literally walked into their office dressed up as a plant and quote unquote planted himself and refused to leave because he wanted to like grow his roots or something. I, I kind of forget the end, like the, the punchline of it, but he actually got the job offer, which I was like, okay, I can never imagine just like painting myself green and putting leaves on myself and walking into like an office space like that and doing that. But it worked for him. So. That's awesome. Well, I've, right. You only have two results. You're either not going to get the job or you get the job. And if you're right. chance, you know. low risk, low <laughs> risk, high reward. Yeah. Super low risk. Um, all right. So transitioning to school, you're going to graduate next year, right? Yes. Next spring. Do you have, you know, a plan on what you're going to do next spring? Do you keep doing these races? Are you going to build up girls with drive? What, what does that look like for you? 
Yeah. Um, oof, you're asking a much kind of larger existential question that I haven't quite figured out yet. Um, from it's a okay. business I mean, standpoint. We, <laughs> I was going to say, we just graduated. So I think we got asked this question probably a million times as well. I get it's really stressful. You know, I mean, I, it totally makes sense. Um, it's a legitimate question. From a racing standpoint, I mean, this is this is a bit of a cop-out answer. I know I want to stay involved in racing, right? Um, it's It's my family. I also... This is kind of cheesy, right? I could probably make more money at another job. Um, there is definitely this misconception that people make a lot of money racing. Very few people actually do. Um, but I'm actually at the stage in my life right now where I could, I'd, I'd rather try and have a larger impact on women in motorsports right now. Um, I don't necessarily know what that looks like. I actually has something cooking up. I just sent a proposal into a sponsor, but I haven't heard back yet. So I, I can't say anything. Um, but something that would really massively increase the scale of girls with drive. So that is my hope actually for next year. Um, I'm also in a bit of a weird position because racing is calendar year, right? Like the racing season starts end of January and ends mid October. And I'm still going to be in school. I'm going to be thesising. I'm going to be graduating. Um, so whatever plans I make for 2022 actually have to start my last semester. Um, so that's also a bit of a weird spot to be in. So, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know I want to keep racing. I know I want to keep um, running and ideally building out and scaling Girls With Drive. What that looks like, a, you know, five years or even a year from now, um, I suppose we will find out. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Uh, and honestly, better said plan than 99.99% of all college uh, junior slash juniors. So um, still really good. Um, all right. One question I had is basically like we were doing a ton of research on like everything you've done between girls with drive, all of your racing accolades along with like going to Harvard and like also just before the call, like was doing research and found out you're in an acapella group too. Um, and so basically like reading through all of this kind of stuff, I'm just really curious, like, in terms of time management, you're traveling a lot. Like, do you tend to find that you're just doing certain things on certain days? And sometimes you just mm -hmm. prioritize them in terms of like, you know, it goes racing, girls with drive classes, extra yes. courses, like things like that. Or how do you go about like you're planning everything that you do and do so well? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the like high priority, high urgency, high priority, low urgency, that, that matrix. Um, I, my first priority is making sure that I have nothing outstanding from a school standpoint going into a race week. And that's just because like racing is so all encompassing and requires so much focus that like, I cannot be doing racing. <laughs> like I, I can't be like doing a final or a midterm or something like that while I'm at the track. And that actually used to not be true. Like there was a very long period of time when I was in high school and even the first year and a half or so of college where I was like, literally getting out of the car, like going into the trailer and I'd like eat and drink while also doing homework that just, I was burning the candle at both ends. Like I ended up being slower in the car. I didn't get the results I wanted in school. Like it, it wasn't going to work. Um, so now it's much more like I, I endeavor to be as present as I can be in whatever I'm doing, assuming that it's very important. Right. So like when I'm in class, I'm also in class. Um, in terms of kind of finding myself doing some things more than others, I actually have gotten like, like my ideal study space is a plane. <laughs> like I get so much homework done on planes. Um, and that's just because of the nature of like, again, when I'm at the racetrack, when I'm testing, I need to be focused on that. Otherwise I'm not getting, I mean, from a, a logistical standpoint, actually like the bang for my buck with sponsorship, right? I want to be driving as much as I can. Um, so planes are like my, I do, I, I actually don't answer emails on planes. I don't do work on planes. Like I specifically do schoolwork. Um, I try to get as ahead on readings as possible and, and all of that. And that actually used to be much more relevant pre-COVID because I was usually on a couple of flights a week. Um, that's obviously less true now. So I've, I've lost my prime study space in Delta seat 17A. Um, but, but, but I still am going to be, you know, as the season ramps up, I'll be probably working on planes more and more. Um, other things that I find myself doing frequently, I wake up super early for, I guess, relative to many of my friends. I usually wake up like between five and six, five, sometimes five and seven. If I, if I wake up past seven, it's like a big moment for me. That's like, a, it's probably a Sunday. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, and I get the vast majority of my, so I, I work out 
and I get any other remaining homework done almost always in the mornings because I want to be doing racing related work, girls with drive related work, like answering emails, working on sponsorships um, during the workday when people will actually answer their emails versus like when I, I've, I found that when I send like really sporadic, scary emails to people at 2am, they usually don't respond. <laughs> so, so I try to save like work that doesn't require that level of communication, like school stuff for kind of the early and late hours. Um, yeah. I mean, you just heard the whole breakdown of my life. My life is pretty much either like doing schoolwork, racing work, or driving a race car um, in some capacity or sleeping or working out. So <laughs> did, uh, did Harvard going online help with like kind of managing everything or did that put everything kind of in the same bucket to make it more confusing? Um, it, well, that was, that. I mean, it actually would have been very helpful in 2019. The problem is that it just happened to coincide for obvious reasons with like the shutdown of racing. So I actually right, only did fair. one race last year. So it, it would have been so helpful beforehand. Um, the flip side of that is I was actually able to take classes that I wouldn't have been able to take beforehand because I used to take classes exclusively Monday through Wednesdays. So I took a lot of seminars. I took classes specifically with professors that would let me take Thursdays off or get notes from someone or things like that. But I was never able to take classes that met on Tuesdays and Thursdays or on Fridays. So I was able to do that uh, this past semester, which was really cool, actually. Like I, I took a bunch of classes that I was super interested in. Actually, most of them met on Thursdays, funnily enough. Um, but I just couldn't do that beforehand because I usually fly out Wednesday night or Thursday morning and I'd be at a racetrack all weekend. So that has been exciting. Um, I don't know actually what the future holds in that regard because I obviously would hope that classes are in person at some point, but that actually does not work out in my favor logistically. What a, what's, a, what's your major? I don't know if we saw that. Yeah, history and literature. Uh, it was it was mechanical engineering. There's all sorts of stuff online from when I was in high school that was like, she got accepted to Harvard and she's going to be a mechanical engineer. Um, all of their mechanical engineering labs meet over the weekend. So it was like a complete non-starter for me, which oh, I should have. I honestly should have asked about that beforehand. Um, so stupid moment on my part. <laughs> but but it actually worked out. I, I love history and literature. I I actually like the fact that it's very separate from like my racing life. Um, I get enough engineering and racing. It's totally fine. All right. So I know we're a little bit over time, uh, but so I just had one last question that I kind of want to end with. Um, sure. Most fun car that you've ever driven, or you can, if you <gasps> can't name one, you can do two or three or, or dream car either as well. Oh my gosh. Um, I have a really lame dream car. I really want a VW bug. Because I grew up wanting <laughs> that's not at all that's <laughs> not at all the answer I was expecting. I, I grew up wanting one of those cars. I think they're so funny. <laughs> just like they're I think they're super funny. And I just it, that's like much more of a sentimental thing. It's because when I was little, I just thought they were really cute. Um, that, that was also like a famous Disney movie too, right? Yes, Herbie fully loaded. With Herbie Lindsay fully Lohan. loaded. It's like the VW made, bug that becomes a racing yes, car. Yeah, it becomes a racing car. And I loved that movie when I was a kid. And I made my teen race campers watch it this summer. And they were all like, this is the worst. It's uh, watching it now. I'm like, all right, this is totally like a B movie, but it's really good. Um, I mean, I, I obviously love it because it, I think it's just awesome. Um, and Lindsay Lohan's brother is the one that's like trying to make it a as a race car driver. And he's just awful. Um, and she just like steps in for him. It's, it's really great. But yeah, that's, that's my dream car. Um, from a racing standpoint, um, I, Ooh, a bunch of things. Um, I've driven a Lamont prototype. So an, an LMP three car that was very cool. It kind of looks like a spaceship. Um, I have driven a Ferrari 488 GT three car. That was very cool. Um, Oh, this was cool just because of the track it was on. I drove a McLaren 720 at, or like on the track at Le Mans during the Le Mans Classic races. And that was actually the fastest I've ever been. I was going like almost 220 miles an hour in a streetcar wearing like a mini skirt and sandals. And I was like, oh my God, if, if the brake line fails on this or something, I'm just going to die. Like, that's it. Um, <laughs> so, oh my so God. So it was a little scary, actually, because I'm very used to like being in a roll cage, and um, I probably shouldn't have gone that fast in a streetcar, but but <laughs> worth it. It was worth it. Um, and, and you survived. Makes for a great story. I, yeah, exactly. I can I can say that now, right? Like I totally could have, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean the this. Oh, okay. This is super specific, but 
last year I drove a Porsche Taycan, like one of the new, the new ones from 2020. And they actually just came out with a bunch of uh, a brand new model. That car is incredible. I mean, I'd never actually driven an electric car before. It was so cool. Um, And it has like this launch control that will completely blow your mind. Like for context, I mean, I've been in a lot of fast cars, right? And when I used launch control on the Taycan, I was giggling the entire time I was driving down the straightaway. Like it was, it was that fun. Um, So if I could buy any street car right now, like not I'd want a VW Bug as like a fun car, right? I'd I'd do autocrosses with it. It, Yeah, or like even just kind of because it's really cute. Um, But I would definitely get a Taycan. Like that's that's an awesome car and great thing for your buck. I think they have a couple out there that are like starting um, starting price seventy to eighty thousand dollars, which is still very expensive. But for a car kind of of that caliber, I'm actually very surprised they made it. They were able to make it that cheap. That's awesome. Aurora, clearly from this conversation, you are a badass and you are killing it at all the things that you're doing. Thank you so much. If people listening want to go and just follow along with everything you're doing, where should they be checking you out? So they should check me out at, I guess, just my Instagram or my Facebook. I've like really avoided creating a TikTok or a Twitter, but I'll have to at some points. But it would likely just be my name. So my my Instagram is just Aurora Strauss, um, A-U-R-O-R-A-S-T-R-A-U-S. And I post pretty much everything on there. So I'm actually announcing my plans for the year. I think this Thursday or Friday, depending on when I hear back from my sponsors officially. Um, so if you want to tune into that announcement, that would be awesome. Well, that's exciting. We'll keep our eyes out. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone. See ya.